And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed the previous episode where I took a look at Gamera 3, The Revenge of Iris, or Iris, with my good friend, uh, Mr. Adam Tebow. Hope everybody dug that. It was a very fun episode, revisiting that classic. Uh, This time out, we are changing directions a little bit. We are going back to the small screen and going back to the Showa period. We are taking a look at episodes 30 and 31 of the original Ultraman, all the way back from 1967. But before we get to that, we have got to get into a little bit of news. And I say a little bit, we got a couple items here, so we're going to jump right into it. Uh, Big news up front, the sequel to Godzilla vs. Kong does have an official description, and this uh, this was making the rounds on a lot of different news sites. This was uh, pretty big when this uh, this finally broke. Had a lot of speculation going on, but straight from the press release, this is what we have. The latest entry follows up the explosive showdown of Godzilla vs. Kong with an all-new cinematic adventure pitting the almighty Kong in the fearsome Godzilla against a colossal, undiscovered threat hidden within our world, challenging their very existence and our own. The epic new film will delve further into the history of these titans, their origins, the mysterious Skull Island, and beyond, while uncovering the mythic battle that helped forge these extraordinary beings and tied them to humankind forever. So, very exciting, very interesting stuff. Clearly uh, going to be working the uh, Hollow Earth that uh, we all kind of speculated, I think, was going to be the setting for whatever film was going to follow Godzilla vs. Kong. I do like that Godzilla is involved. There was a lot of speculation that it would only be Kong going forward, and that Godzilla would return to the sea and stay there. But it looks like Legendary is uh, interested in, in working with both of those titans, at least for the next film. Now, so far, we do know that Adam Wingard is returning to direct after doing Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, and Terry Rossio, who worked on Godzilla vs. Kong, is one of the screenwriters. Uh, the cast includes the returning Rebecca Hall, who played Dr. Andrews. That's the anthropological linguist who worked with Kong. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who was Bernie the podcaster. And uh, Kaylee Hodel, who was Gia. That was a Skull Island native girl who imprinted with Kong. Now, among the new cast that's been announced is um, the announced lead, Dan Stevens, best known for his role on Downton Abbey which I have to say I have not watched. I actually did see a little bit of the movie while on a cruise, and I kind of followed it, and it was interesting, but I didn't know who any of these people were, so kind of went with it from that. Now, principal photography commenced uh, in the Gold Coast, Queensland, which is in Australia, on July 29th, uh, earlier this year. Release currently set for March 15th, 2024, so put that one in your uh, in your calendars. Not really surprised for that March release. You know, Godzilla vs. Kong in the COVID era did real well in that early 
um, that early spring release window. So I bet you that Warners and Legendary are looking at that and saying, hey, we could do that again with the sequel here to Godzilla vs. Kong. So very exciting. You know, it was always kind of unclear what the next step was going to be in the MonsterVerse as far as film. I know we've gotten, you know, there's going to be a, uh, a live action show and supposedly an animated show. So uh, I like to see the franchise continue. I've, I've enjoyed all the entries in it. And very much eager to see this one. So, um, changing direction a little bit. New Ultraman releases coming from Mill Creek in the next couple of months. We've got lots coming out here. So, up first, we have the Ultraman Cosmos Complete Series and Specials Collection. That is due on October 11th. Also coming on, on October 11th, Ultraman Neos, the Complete Series. And rounding out the October 11th date, the Ultraman Z-Earth movie double feature. So three big releases there from the uh, Heisei era for uh, Mill Creek for Ultraman coming up in the month of October. Now, don't think November is getting left out. We've got two other releases. We have Ultraman Max, which I believe is a complete series. I don't know if the specials or movies for that are included. We haven't seen the artwork for that one yet. And the collection of Ultraman Nexus and Ultraman The Next. Now, that should be really cool. Big fan uh, I've, uh, of those. I've seen that movie and a little bit of that series. I'm a big fan of that. Very, very cool. Not seen as much. I've seen, I think, a couple episodes of Ultraman Max when it was on. I think Crunchyroll had Max. I watched a little bit of it there. Uh, all very cool stuff, and it's very exciting to get uh, plenty of new Ultra stuff to watch here from Mill Creek. Now, we've been hearing that this license is supposedly ending very soon. Now, there's been a few titles that they've either announced or mentioned in passing that we have not seen anything officially for yet. That includes Ultraman Kids, which was the anim one of the animes, Ultra Q Dark Fantasy, Ultraman Toward the Future, featuring Ultraman Great, of course that was the one produced in Australia, Ultraman the Ultimate Hero, featuring Ultraman Powered, of course that was the one famously produced in the United States, but never aired in the United States, and Ultraman the Adventure Begins, a.k.a. Ultraman USA, the Hanna-Barbera animated film. Now, supposedly Ultraman Kids is due in December. There's been no official word that I've seen on that. I'm really hoping that we'll get it along with um, the, I mean, obviously all of these. The two big ones, to me, are Toward the Future and The Ultimate Hero. I'd love to see those actually available in a, in a legal format. I have, I'm have i not going to lie, I have bootlegs of those from many years ago that I picked up at Heroes Con because those shows were just not able to be found. Uh, Toward the Future was the first Ultraman I ever watched and my real first exposure to Ultraman, so it holds kind of a special place to me uh, and would really like to see that get an official release. Uh, plus, you know, I, I just want as much as we can get out of Mill Creek before this license does eventually end. Now, what this means as far as the later shows, I have no idea. I'm assuming someone else is going to pick that up. Uh, maybe it'll be Shout. He's going to pick that up and uh, and pick up some of those later ones like uh, Zet and Trigger and Ultra Galaxy Fight. I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. Now, in other Daikaiju news, Discotech's Blu-ray release of the infamous Legend of Dinosaurs and Monster Birds is up for pre-order, both on the Discotech site as well as on Amazon. Now, long-time listeners may remember, they may, that I did in fact cover this insane movie many years ago, but not here. I was on a different Two True Freaks podcast, The Mass Media Masochist, with Two True Freaks OG and my co-host over at The Vault, Chris Honeywell. Now, the Blu-ray has both the Japanese and English language tracks. No word on the German Gigaten der Wurzeit cut, however, so you have to hold your breath on that one. Now, I will have to cover this one on Earth Destruction Directive properly at some point. It is just too much fun as a slice of cynical late 1970s Jaws ripoff to ignore. 
Uh, it is um, it is a lot of fun. It is a strange movie. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, now, that disc is set to come out on uh, November 29th, so please check that out. Discotech I mostly know from doing anime, uh, more so than Tokusatsu. I have... Um, have uh, their Machine Robo Revenge of Kronos release. Looking forward to their Machine Robo Battle Hackers release also coming up pretty soon. But they do a lot of anime. Uh, but see, they're dabbling into Toku as well here as, uh, also. And in even more obscure Daikaiju news, the legendary 1967 Korean film Space Monster Wang Magwai, long thought to be lost forever, is being released by SRS Cinema. Now, not much in the way of details, but for a film... This obscure and this, you know, legendarily thought to be lost, to be released at all, that's big news in the Daikaiju community. Pre-orders go up on the SRS website at uh, the end of the month, September 29th. Shipping date there, saying late January. SRS offering the film on Blu-ray. Um, I can't confirm whether they're going to do the VHS. A lot of times they'll do a Blu-ray release and a VHS release, and then sometimes follow on with DVD. Right now, the Blu-ray is up. Um, I've supported most all of SRS's Daikaiju offerings. You know, they did, um, you know, Rago and Raiga and God Raiga versus King Oga and Hell Beyond the Fog. And they've done a few, um, oh, uh, Monster Seafood Wars, Giant Buddha Arrival. They've released several of these, uh, smaller or more obscure films here in the, in the West. And I've really supported them. This is another one I will definitely pick up. Now, this is a title which I had read about in discussions of lost monster movies literally since I was a little kid. So, to finally see it in any form, going to be an, a bizarre feeling for sure. More on that to come as more develops. If you have any news that you think would be uh, be worthwhile passing along, why don't you send it in? Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show, and I'll give you a shout-out if you do. So, all right, that's the news. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into not one, but two episodes of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman Episode 30, Phantom of the Snow Mountain, subtitled featuring legend monster Wu, 
was broadcast on February 5th, 1967 on TBS. That's Tokyo Broadcast System. The episode is titled as The Snowy Mountain of Illusion or The Phantom Snow Mountain when it was released on home media in the West. Our writer is Tetsuo Kinjo. We've mentioned him before in the show, one of the key creators of the Ultra series. He was one of the creators of Ultra Q and the head writer of both Ultraman and Ultra 7. Uh, beloved creator, he, uh, the, of course, the mecha King Joe is named in his honor after uh, Tetsuo Kinjo. Our director is Yuzo Higuchi, previously directed episode 20, Terror on Route 87 with Hydra. That's one about the boy's statue coming to life after he's killed in the uh, car wreck. And episode 21, Breach the Wall of Smoke, featuring the monster Kemular. Uh, Higuchi also directs the next episode that we will cover on this podcast. Uh, so he's getting uh, getting some some Ultraman work, not a, not a ton. They did rotate through directors. Uh, now our synopsis is uh, adapted a little liberally from ultra.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. A group of men escort the hunter Machimura after he fainted on Mount Ida to the nearby ski resort. He claimed to be attacked by a creature named Wu in the middle of chasing a girl who meddled with his bear hunt, with the monster appearing to protect the girl. Captain Muramatsu dispatches Hayata, Irashi, and Ide to investigate the situation out of fear that the nearby ski resort would be threatened by the monster. Mount Ida was popular due to constantly remaining snowy even during the summer, as well as having been declared a mystery zone. The three patrol Mount Ida on skis, but find themselves lost when the trail signs have been moved. Hayata accidentally injures his right leg after falling into the snow girl's trap. The ski resort owner, Akita, tells the team the story that 15 years prior, the snow girl, Yukiko, and her mother appeared in the village out of nowhere. After her mother died, Yukiko was left alone, but was labeled as a bad omen by the villagers due to her miraculously surviving in the mountains. Charcoal maker Kisuke decided to adopt her, but he died two years ago, leaving her all alone, with all her only friends being the animals on the mountain. Even though for 15 years she was settled in the village, she is still considered a pariah, a fact that is strengthened by her connection to the legendary monster Wu. Later, Yukiko is threatened and taunted by the kids in the village, who trap her in a pit and harass her. The three SSSP members decide to spend the night at the ski resort, while Ide relates to Yukiko's story to how he lost his mother at a young age. The next day, Wu appears and starts to approach the resort. Yukiko manages to convince Wu into retreating to the mountains, despite Machimura firing his rifle at him. However, another incident of a villager falling into a trap drives the villagers to chase the girl, while Arashi and Ide are ordered to eliminate the monster with the jet VTOL. Hayata, still laid up with his injury, is forced to transform into Ultraman when Wu approaches the resort once more. When Yukiko calls the monster's name, Wu slowly disappears from the scene. Yukiko was, however, at that point seemingly dead, laying unmoving in the snow. The SSSP theorized that Yukiko was just an illusion created by the mountains, like Wu, and they head for home, the mission seemingly complete. Now this is one episode which has stuck with me from the first time I saw it back on the original Mill Creek DVD set many years ago. It's a thoughtful and offbeat kind of story, so let's get right into the notes and discuss it. Now, seeing as this episode was written by Kinjo, it is not surprising it has a very strong Ultra-Q flavor. One could easily see this story being told without Ultraman, as our hero only briefly tangles with the monster, and does not ultimately impact the outcome of the story. Even the SSP's role, attacking Wu with the Jet VTOL, could easily enough be changed to Q's investigation of the scene. 
The upshot is that, like we have seen lately in the series, the episode is not exactly action-packed, but instead leans a bit more on the story, the SSSP almost being observers to the superstitions and prejudices of the villagers. There's a great bit of exchange between the Snow Girl and Ide, where she accuses the SSSP of being terrible people who call everything a monster and kill it, Ide responding that the SSSP only kills monsters who threaten the safety of mankind, a sentiment of the show that I have long appreciated. The setting of Mount Ida is quite nice, and we've had snowy settings before on the show, uh, but being set on a ski slope gives us some really wonderful period visuals, including lots of what I can only assume are just regular holiday makers skiing and otherwise enjoying the resort. We also get to see Hayata, Ide, and Arashi on skis while wearing just their SSSP uniforms, which begs the question, just how warm are those uniforms? They must be more well-insulated than they look. There's some great 1960s partying going on in one scene as well, with folks dancing to the jukebox and eating at tables with the, those wonderful red and white checkered tablecloths. Additionally, we get a quick glimpse at an egghead pinball table. And you folks well know that I am always a sucker for a pinball table. Now, Egghead is a Gottlieb electromechanical game from 1961, has a scientist or robot theme. Namely, it's a scientist controlling a robot, playing tic-tac-toe, I get us a quartet of beauties. On the flip side, the extremely deep snow we see Yukiko trudging through makes me think of nothing else but The Shining and the very real fear of fleeing for one's life through such rough terrain. Wu is a very intriguing and memorable monster to me, being an extremely furry yeti or, or snowman. Now, my first connection for Wu is to the snowman from Toho's Half-Human, which we covered back on episode 74 of this show, as both are pitiable monsters who are feared by humans more out of ignorance than of any actual menace. Of course, the other connection for those of us of a certain age is the Bumble from Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, the Bumble predates Wu by three years, but I'm not sure if that holiday special was broadcast in Japan by the time this episode was produced. Now, given the difference in Western versus Eastern celebrations of even a secular Christmas, I would think not, but I might be wrong on that one. Either way, the amusing connection to the Bumble aside, I find that Wu is a memorable monster since he is in many ways a traditional, albeit giant, version of a snowman. The white fur, the bluish skin, even the large eyes all, to me, represent a classic look for a yeti, so in that sense, Wu is a success. One atypical aspect which I really dig is his eyelids, which blink horizontally instead of vertically, giving him a weird, inhuman sort of vibe. And when we see him in action, Wu is a ferocious monster, choking Ultraman with two hands at one point. Naturally, Ultraman does not return the brutality, preferring to toss Wu around with Judo, using the monster's weight and momentum against him. There's some nifty special effects shots this time out as well, a couple of very well-executed shots where we see Wu composited over the top of the ski slope, with vacationers fleeing from him in the foreground. We also get a scene of the jet VTOL crashing and skidding across the snow, which was well done given that it is a simple model being dragged across a scale set. Also, this is the only time I can remember seeing a Daikaiju destroy a chairlift. If anyone else out there remembers one, please write in and let me know. Normally, I don't talk too much about the dubbed version of these episodes, but I do want to discuss the dub a little bit here. While the original story does have some ambiguity at the ending, the dub goes out of its way to change it into something of a happy ending. In the dub, the SSSP theorize instead that the Snow Girl, who is unnamed in the dub, went back to the forest and didn't need Wu to protect her anymore. Furthermore, they speculate that someday she will find something living to give her whatever love and affection she needs, and with more love, the world's a better place. 
It goes from ambiguous in the original to downright bizarre in the dub. The dub, however, does give us a great line from the ski resort owner, where he says, Monsters are monsters, and they can become violent at any time. Now, some things, however, never change. Despite us learning a little bit about Ide's childhood, being an orphan himself, he also gets snow thrown in his face because... COMEDY! All told, Phantom of Snow Mountain is a strong episode of Ultraman, mostly due to it being an atypical episode. There's not a huge monster out to ravage the world, or a huge battle in the last act with the fate of the Earth hanging in the balance. It's a much more personal story, intimate and pensive. Wu is a great riff on the classic Yeti motif, and his personality shines through, even though he will not go down as one of the strongest foes of Ultraman. It's a very good episode, well worth watching. Now, if you would like to watch Phantom of the Snow Mountain, you have a couple of options. You can pick up the original series on Blu-ray from Mill Creek in either the regular box or Steelbook release. These, as far as I am aware, still include the free digital copies on the now severely limited Movie Spree website, but you cannot buy the episodes directly from Movie Spree at this point. I did check, Movie Spree does still work if you have those digital copies loaded, so I'd assume that if you buy a new, uh, a new copy of, the, of the, D, the Blu-ray set, it'll have the code that you can use. Uh, in addition, the episode can be streamed for free with ads on Shout Factory TV if you'd rather go that route. So what do you folks think? Do you like Wu? Do you like these more um, you know, thoughtful episodes that are maybe not as heavy on the action? Write me in and let, let me know. EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our second episode of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Warriors podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare Road Warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like conventions or visiting the homes and grave sites comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comic's creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment, just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats. Zombie robots. Day-walking vampires. Gargoyle armies. And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 31, Who Goes There? Subtitled featuring Vampire Plant Coronia was broadcast on February 12th, 1967 on Tokyo Broadcasting Service. The episode is titled as Who Has Come or Who Has Arrived when it was released on home media in the West. Our writer is Taro Kaido, who previously wrote episode 21, Breach the Wall of Smoke, working with our director, Yuzo Higuchi, uh, as a director on that one. So, interesting, we get the team of Kaido and Higuchi back together here. And the director, as I said, was Yuzo Higuchi. Our synopsis, adapted from ultra.fandom.com, goes a little something like this. 
At SSSP headquarters, Captain Muramatsu introduces Goto from Bolivia HQ, who has returned from his 20-year-long journey through the Amazon. Arashi and Ide are amazed, as Goto only looks to be about 30 years old. Goto explains that his father was an SSSP member, and he made the journey along with him. After his father died, young Goto applied for and became a junior member of the SSSP and has been in South America ever since. Having been away from Japan for so long, Ide jokes about playing tour guide to show Goto how the country has changed. When Captain Muramatsu goes to light a cigarette, the lighter mysteriously fails. Everyone is very suspicious, and even more suspicious, when Fuji tries to use a match, but it too fails. As the SSSP begins to question this, Goto asks if he can have a rest. As Fuji shows him to one of the guest rooms, Goto asks about the construction of the HQ. Fuji replies that the building is constructed of reinforced concrete. Goto adds that a special alloy is included, confusing Fuji as that information is secret. As Ide and Arashi air their suspicions about Goto, Fuji rudely has the door to the guest room shut in her face, leading her to conclude that standard must be different in South America. In the room, Goto reveals a secret panel in his suitcase, injecting himself with a substance and using a strange machine. Hayata doubts the rest of the team's suspicions, as Goto's picture is in the duty roster, and his background checks out with their files. Fuji's revelation about Goto's statement of the building material, coupled with the fact that his sudden arrival means Goto did not undergo the typical ray scanning, however, arouses the captain's suspicions, which grows even stronger when they are unable to contact Bolivia HQ by radio. However, all that is put on hold as an emergency call comes in about a strange plant growing at an incredible rate. In the city of Takarashi, the giant mushroom-like plants are discovered, growing to over two meters tall in one day. Professor Ninomiya describes the growth as a form of an aggressive, carnivorous vegetation that moves about to stalk prey, draining their blood for nutrition. This vegetation, named the vampire plant Coronia, was discovered in the Amazon 20 years ago by a scientist named Godo. Back at SSSPHQ, Fuji does some snooping, but is attacked by a man-sized Coronia, who paralyzes her with its eye beams. Discovering that Fuji is missing, the SSSP investigate the room. After hustling Goto out, Hayata discovers a secret compartment in the suitcase and samples of Coronia plants. Professor Ninomiya's analysis concludes that the Coronia have evolved at a rapid pace and are now more advanced than humans. As the professor theorizes that the Coronia only survive by consuming human blood, the Goto-disguised Coronia arrives and paralyzes him. Only the timely arrival, the SSSP saves the professor. Coronia then grows giant, taunting humanity that he and his botanical humans shall exterminate all human life and take over the planet. To this end, an invasion fleet arrives in Earth's atmosphere. The JSDF is deployed, but their tanks are no match for Coronia's destructive I-beams. Ide and Arashi battle the fleet in the jet VTOL, but they are badly outnumbered. Hayata changes to Ultraman and attacks the massive Coronia directly. Coronia battles fiercely, even resisting the Specium Beam. His color timer blinking, Ultraman then resorts to an even more powerful technique, the Ultra Attack Beam, causing Coronia to explode. His power dangerously low, Ultraman then takes to the skies, wiping out the invading fleet with the Specium Beam. Back at HQ, the team concludes that the Coronia used their telepathic powers to put out the small fires near them, owing to their high flammability. Professor Ninomiya theorizes that even in this modern advanced world, there are countless mysteries still and that man must be ever wary against threats. 
Ah, vampiric plants. Such a classic sci-fi concept. Coronia takes it one step further in this episode, though, so let's get right into the notes. Like the last time we covered Ultraman, this pair of episodes is a sort of day and night situation. Like episode 29 with Goldon, this is more of a straightforward, action-oriented episode. There's a bit of mystery thrown in which I like, but ultimately, this is an episode with Ultraman having to repel an invasion force, rather than one of the more thought-provoking stories here in the final third of the series. Now please don't misunderstand, there's nothing wrong with a monster-fighting episode, but this one does have a couple of logical leaps, which don't make a whole lot of sense to me. Why does Goto not consume Fuji or the Professor when they're stunned? Why does he just leave them stunned? How does a Coronia manage to disguise itself as a human in the first place? And where does the invasion fleet come from in the last act? That fleet's a big one for, frankly, because it sort of undermines the whole point of the episode. Was Coronia an alien life form or a native life form? If they're an alien life form advanced enough to travel through space, why did they need so much time to evolve and be discovered 20 years ago? If they are a native life form, how did they obtain the technology to build this fleet? I know. I get it. I really should just breathe and just relax. But it's my podcast, and these are the questions that I think about. As I said, the concept of a vampiric or man-eating plant is a trope of science fiction, both East and West. I immediately thought of the vampire plants from Infant Island in the original Mothra, and we got a similar sort of killer vine in the two-part episode His Monster Highness featuring Gomera a few episodes back. The man-eating plant even has its own page on TV tropes. Similarly, Coronia is mentioned on the TV tropes page for Plant Person, and I would say that this episode covers both of those tropes quite nicely. Now, I have to, at this point, shout out to my friend Adam Tebow, who loves TV tropes and will often fall down that rabbit hole. How you doing, Adam? Crony is alright as far as plant monsters go, uh, being humanoid as it is. I compare this kind of negatively to Green Mons, who we covered a long time ago. He who was less well-defined, but gave me a more positive plant life vibe. It's all sort of relative, since the most memorable and definitive plant monster would not show up for another 22 years with Biolanti, but given the different context, that's probably not a fair comparison. My favorite look for Coronia in the entire episode, I must say, was when Kodo would shed his disguise, and Coronia would be wearing a suit. Now, for all the world, this made me think of a, a universal or AIP monster, where the face and hands were made up, but the body was being covered by the costume. Now, you comp- uh, combine this with some really effectively creepy light and shadow, and you have a really menacing kaijin, a human-sized monster like we might see in Kamen Rider. This is especially true in the sequence at the professor's laboratory, where we see uh, Goto enter the room, and then it cuts to the professor, and it cuts back, and now he is the uh, he's the uh, the Coronia, and it's really very well done. Another touch which amused the absolute heck out of me was Coronia's deep baritone voice with which he taunts the human race during his attack. Uh, but again, this raises another point. It's worth noting. Being able to speak makes Coronia more like an alien than a monster, further putting him into a sort of nebulous space as far as classification goes, and we all know us Daikaiju nerds do like to classify things. The effects are good, albeit nothing really out of the ordinary for this point in the series insofar as suits, models, or other miniatures. The main draw as far as the special effects is Ultraman's new attack, the creatively named Ultra Attack Beam. It's a novel look with uh, rings covering Ultraman's arm and then shooting out to hit the target, who seems to freeze in place before exploding. From a modern perspective, it is a little strange to have a new attack introduced with such little fanfare, but that was how it was done in this period. Now, why the decision was made by Kaido to have Coronia be powerful enough to resist the Specium Beam? 
I don't know. Now, freestyle in here. My take is that between the invasion angle, the fleet of ships threatening the entire human race, the strength of Corodia, that Kaido may have been somewhat enamored with his creation and wanted to put him over as a major threat to Ultraman. I mean, I imagine that when you're turning out scripts for a show like Ultraman, that some monsters mean a bit more to you than others, right? But of course, all that is simply speculation on my part, and all we have to know is that Cronia resists the Svesium Beam and needs a new attack. Who Goes There is not one of the best episodes of the series, nor is it really a lesser episode either. It's an average episode of the series, with a monster which is well-executed but not particularly memorable, coupled with a fairly average science fiction story. Final battle's nice, we got a new attack from Ultraman, but I cannot help but question if a monster of Coronia's stature really deserves earning a new attack. Vanish quandaries aside, you know, who goes there? It's fun, it's action-packed 30 minutes, worth your time and consideration. If you're an Ultraman fan, I think you'll enjoy this episode. Now, if you would like to watch Who Goes There, again, you can check it out on Blu-ray from Mill Creek, or it can be streamed on Shout Factory TV. And as I said before, it is included on the Movie Spree streaming service if you have that Blu-ray or bought it digitally before their storefront was shuttered. Now, what do you think? Have you watched Who Goes There? What do you think about Coronia? Do you like killer plants? Do you like vampire plants? How do you think he compares to, say, Green Mons or even Bioland? Uh, write me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your feedback. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And in my hands, I hold a little bit of... Listener feedback, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Just listen to the outro, and that'll have all the information that you need. Our first bit of feedback is entitled, Grab Your Quarters, and comes from my brother Jason Giaconetti. And Jay writes, Hey Luke, I don't remember playing King of the Monsters 2 that much at Aversano's. My memories are more of Golden Axe, Arch Rivals, and X-Men. With that said, I do remember playing this some on Genesis. 
If my memory serves me correctly, I liked King of the Monsters better because of the wrestling aspect. That sounds right. This is, again, more of a fighting game, the Genesis one. And definitely for, for you, Jay, yeah, the wrestling thing was more your style. I do remember playing Golden Axe. I remember playing Golden Axe. We were so hyped when we first played Golden Axe at Aversano's. And then we got Golden Axe for the Genesis. Oh, man, that game still holds up. Anyway, uh, Jay continues. Now, Funko Land was a freaking gold mine for hard-to-get carts. Let me jump out here. The other one I remember getting besides... Uh, King of the Monsters 2, Saturday Night Slam Masters, keeping the uh, the Japanese oddball wrestling game thing going on. That was another one we got at, at Funko Land. Um, Jay continues, I know GameStop has now taken that over, but Funko Land was just so cool. I also loved old mom and pop video stores, but I don't want to get this too off topic. As you know, I'm really bad at most video games, and King of the Monsters 2 was no different. I don't even need the machine to cheat to lose because I'm pretty good at doing that myself. Anyway, another great episode. Keep up the great work. Keep them stomping. Jason. Yeah, Jay, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with those SNK games. It's like, okay, you're gonna, you've already got my money, okay? You're gonna beat me just on skill alone. You don't need to make the computer an impossible thing to fight, right? Because there's no way I'm gonna do this on, on one on one credit. I love watching these guys on YouTube. Say, oh, it's one credit, no damage. It's like, well, isn't that freaking special, you know? Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate that, you know. But hey, that that's why we play the games, right? And you and I always played more uh, cooperative or, or head-to-head games than we did one-player games usually, anyway. So you know, we 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 were we were couch co-op before couch co-op was a thing. So we didn't have a couch; we were sitting on the floor. But <laughs> anyway, thank you for writing in, Jay. Appreciate the email. All right, our next bit of feedback is a long time ago on a channel called ABC, and comes from loyal listener Rich S. And Rich writes, "Hey, Luke." Sorry to admit this, but I have yet to listen to your latest two pods, but I do always skip ahead and listen to the part that tells what is coming next. In doing so, I heard that you were going to do a movie that I've had on DVD for about 10 years and first saw pieces of back in the late 1970s. Rich, I don't mind. Uh, I talked about this on, um, I think it was Robert Ludwig's uh, feedback a little while ago. I don't mind if you skip episodes. They're, they're still there, right? That's the point of a podcast is that it's there for you to listen when you're ready. So uh, I, I appreciate you going and finding out what's next. Uh, you know, that is the way we are, right? We don't, you know, Marvel movies have taught us nothing. It's that, well, what's coming next? That's really important. Anyway, Rich continues, I went and did a little looking, and turns out it was exactly Friday night, January 27th, 1978, that I saw The Bermuda Depths. I really don't want to get into a review of the film, save for the fact that I was totally mesmerized by the giant turtle destroying the helicopter, as well as a haunting image of Carl Weathers doing an Ahab and Moby moment with said turtle. The whole reason I saw the movie in bits and pieces as a kiddo is because at the very same time, CBS was showing a mud monster flick called The World Beyond. I was in total monster crisis, not knowing exactly when I should switch the channel back from one to the other. Anyway, that's my story. That is fabulous. That is absolutely fabulous. And Rich has been nice enough. He's included on here. I'm guessing this is from TV Guide. It is a clip of TV Guide. And it says, um, it's got two, two things here. So it's on one channel, it's got Pilot, Thriller, The World Beyond, A Tale of the Occult, focusing on a writer who dies on an operating table and then is revived. His short-lived contact with death, however, has its after-effects, as he's called by supernatural voices to a remote island where a monster is running amok. This is a pilot for a possible but unscheduled series. Uh, Paul, played by Granville Van Dusen, Marion by Joe Beth Williams, 60 Minutes, preempts regular programming. And then right below that, on different channel, marine biologists pursue a mysterious creature that haunts the Bermuda Depths. 
and this eerie 1977 romantic drama, and then it has the cast Lee McCloskey, Burl Eyes, Carl Weathers, Connie Selica, Julie Woodson, and Ruth Attaway. That is so cool. I'm sorry. That's awesome. You know, I, I mean, I hate being that guy, but when you were growing up with broadcast TV, this is the choices you had to make, you know? And if the president was on, it would ruin the whole night. He's on every channel, you know? But, oh, th- this is this is so wonderful. And um, I've never seen The World Beyond as a, a you know, pilot. Uh, I'm gonna have to. Um, I'm gonna have to dig that one up. I'm sure I can find that on YouTube or archive or something and check that out. And uh, because that, I'm sorry. I I'm, I understand exactly where you're coming from, having to flip back and forth between the channels and getting a little bit of each. And it was amazing that you were able to find the specific ones, Rich. That is so cool. Uh, so Rich continues. I'm not going to rewatch the DVD of, of Bermuda Depths. To tell the truth, I'd rather spend my time giving a listen to your analysis of the film when I do manage to catch up on my podcast. By the way, I loved your Ultraman coverage of Goldon and especially Dada. I have a soft spot for the weirdo three-faced phantom. I'm always looking forward to more Earth Destruction Directive Kaiju Goodness, signed Rich S. Rich, thank you very much for writing in. Glad you dug the Ultraman. Hope you dug uh, this episode when you get to it of Ultraman as well. And that Bermuda Deaths episode was a lot of fun doing it with Dr. Bill. It's always fun to record with Bill. And he was the one that brought it to my attention and brought it to the show. So uh, I just had a, a great time with that. So... Thank you very much, Rich, and thank you very much, Jay, for writing in. Remember, if you'd like to uh, get on the show with your email, earthdestructiondirectivevideo.com. Uh, try to read all feedback on the show, so please, always welcome. Uh, a few more emails in the sack, but it is starting to get a little empty, so uh, any feedback you have, I would love to hear it. Uh, social media love, likes, shares, retweets, all that jazz for the last episode for Revenge of Eris came from Adam Tebow, unsurprising as he was a guest, uh, Chuck Rodriguez. Derek WC, Derek William Crab of the Fan Holes, Mr. Lomax, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine, Hendrix, Billy D.A.K. Doc Strange over from Magazines of Monsters, Robert Ludwig the Most Sane Man Among Us, Tim Elliott, Chris Mounts, Brian Sever, Jason Giaconetti, my brother, John Vanover the Engineer, Siskoid, Robert Rowling, Nathan Marchand and Jimmy from NASA, together they are the Monster Island Film Vault. Crystal Lady Jessica, the Henshin Men Podcast, the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. It's really just the Power Trip Podcast. I call it the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. Two True Freaks, the Telltale Mind, Dorky Geeky Nerdy Trivia, Ross Radke, creator of Stomped, and the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Thank you very much for all of that uh, lovely social media help. Uh, everybody knows that social media and feedback and listener feedback, these are the things that we do this for. You know, really helps get the word out of the show. I'm not making any money on this show. I know uh, I actually did have a coworker was very surprised that I wasn't making money on my podcast. I'm like, yeah, believe it or not, this is I actually do all this just for fun. <laughs> so uh, so I do appreciate all that social media love, all that feedback, and uh, it's, it's very much uh, appreciated, as I said, so... Um, and anything that can help get the word out is is always a plus for the show. I'd also like to take an opportunity to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. You know, uh, we've we've had some troubles in the Daikaiju community over the last few years, gatekeeping and uh, elitism. And th- this is not an elitist show. This is not a show where we say, well, you can't be a Daikaiju fan unless... Uh, I, I welcome all opinions. I, I welcome diverse opinions because I want to talk about them. If there's something that you like that I don't, I want to know why. What worked for you that didn't work for me? What What did you bring from your perspective or your background that made this more enjoyable for you than I did? I'd like to do that because to me, that that's what it's about, right? I mean, I'm not one for winning a fandom. I never quite understood that. And in this case, I'd, I'd rather just have discussions and have fun 
And so if, if you are a Daikaiju fan of, of any level, whatever you put yourself at, if, if you want to interact with this show, you can interact with this show in any way that makes you comfortable. All are welcome here at Earth Destruction Directive. All right, well, now we have come to that point where we must us always look forward as to what's coming next. And we're going we're gonna to change gears again. We went from a, a live-action Heisei movie to some Showa TV. Well, now we are changing directions. We're going to the Rewa era. We're going to the very modern era that we're in right now. And we're going to an animated uh, feature. And we are taking a look at the third Godzilla anime, The Planet Eater. We've covered the first two. I was I was dutifully impressed, to be honest with you. I like the second one a lot more than I thought I was going to going into it. I am very excited for The Planet Eater. I've heard a lot of mixed things about it, so we'll see uh, kind of what happens with this. But uh, here in the U.S., you can see The Planet Eater on Netflix, which is where I intend to watch it. Uh, very, like I said, very excited to, to, to finish up covering that Godzilla anime series and, and see how it goes. In addition, we might have some more news on development of the new Godzilla vs. Kong sequel, uh, any other stuff that's coming up, new Ultraman releases, new Daikaiju Blu-ray releases, uh, any of that stuff that comes up, of course, we'll, we'll talk about. Um, again, you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Facebook, just listen to the outro and you'll get the locations for those. You can email me, earthdestructiondirectivevideo.com. You can find Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube, just search for, wait for it, Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube, and you'll find our channel there. Mostly we just have mirrors of the episodes up. I did have a great unboxing for the Stomped, kick, uh, Stomped Issue Number 3 Kickstarter rewards, which was really cool. Hope to do some more um, uh, additional exclusive YouTube content. That's one of my plans for, for next year, so we'll see. You know, you know I tell a podcaster's lying, right? Their lips are moving. So, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. But now that I've put it out into the universe, maybe that'll force me to do it. Um, but in any event, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode, taking a look at two episodes of Ultraman featuring the legendary monster Wu and the vampire plant Coronia. Hope everybody comes back next time where we take a look at the third Godzilla anime, The Planet Eater. And uh, until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one.